Well, welcome back to another Sunday morning. Um, again, keep Peter in your prayers. Uh, the harder you guys pray, the sooner you get to not listen to me. Um, he, uh, he hasn't been sleeping well, a lot of nerve pain. So just, just uh, be praying for him. He's, he's a tough guy, and this one is, is fighting him hard. So we were, again, talking with Miss Jean just before we started, the, the element of spiritual warfare here. You know, just there's clearly something... Like, these are big battles. And, uh, you know, I was saying, sometimes I feel like like I'm not worth the devil messing with, right? Like, he can leave my own devices and I'll screw things up. Uh, but then there's times, especially when we have missions that we're on. Um, and Peter's been on a mission for a long time that, uh, that the fight gets especially gross, you know? Uh, so we will be continuing to pray for him. Um, we're going to finish kind of the second part of what we did last week. And, and uh, if y'all want to just look at the recap here, I'm going to try to do this for you guys regularly just in case you missed the previous week. Um, and also so that you can, with the agenda part, so you can keep me accountable to doing what I say I'm going to do at the beginning of each lesson. Uh, so we talked about John's occasion for writing the letter, right, which was false teachers leaving the church and trying to drag these believers out. Um, and his admonition in response to that being to let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. So to let the gospel and the truths that they knew about God, specifically about the deed of Jesus, um, abide in them, and that that would have certain effects. And we talked about two of them, which was abiding in the Son and the Father, and also the, the, the effect of eternal life. Uh, so this week, we're going to discuss some more effects of abiding in that truth and letting what we heard abide in us. Uh, but we're going to start by just recapping our verses that we talked about, 1 John 2, 24-29. But we're going to be focusing more in the 27-29 through 29 range since we covered the other ones earlier. But I'll read the whole thing for you guys here. Um, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you call us to abide in you and that you abide in us. God, those are giant ideas. Uh, Lord, help us to dwell on them daily and, and understand your blessing that comes of only when we when we abide in you and truly find our, our home in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the third effect we're going to talk about is that when you abide in what you've been taught, he says, the anointing that you received from him abides in you. Now, what's, now who's the him here? The anointing received from Jesus. Um, and what is that anointing? What is the anointing you received from him? The Holy Spirit, right? Um, so I, the, when we see this word abiding, remember we talked about this idea of like, of a steadfast, 
active staying, right? That it stays in an active way. It's not just sitting around waiting. It's even like actively waiting if it's waiting. Um, an interesting use of this verb, verse, and remember we talked about how Greek words aren't magic, right? They just, we just translate them sometimes different ways, and we have to trace back to the Greek to realize where there may be a trend that the English translators, for one reason or another, chose different words for. Um, so in John 1.32, for example, when we see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him or it rested on him. That's that same abide word. So there's a permanence that you see there, right? The permanent abiding of the Holy Spirit in Jesus in the flesh. Um, and then Jesus going forward, so this is where he blesses us with that abiding and that anointing is, if you love me, you will keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor, comforter, helper. You hear that translated a few ways. To be with you for how long? Forever. He is the spirit of truth. Remember we talked about how the Holy Spirit uh, attests to them what they know, right? To attest the truth. He's the spirit of truth. Uh, he is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains, abides with you, and will be within you. And then John taking that forward into his epistle. But that, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. So there is, as we dwell and as we abide in God and Christ, there is an abiding of the Holy Spirit that is permanent. And it is a fixed quantity. It's an absolute thing. Um, sometimes we get this wrong in our heads, I do, because we think about, we confuse the objective fact for our subjective experience of that fact, right? The Holy Spirit dwells in you, period. He abides in you, period. He abides in you as much now as he abided, abode in you at the day of your salvation. God saves you. He anoints you with his Holy Spirit your experience of that can change. Uh, we talked a little bit about the sailboat analogy, right? I can have my sails furled and the wind can be blowing and I will not move, right? <laughs> the Holy Spirit is doing is the guy, I mean, I think there's a reason why Jesus uses the wind analogy for the Holy Spirit, right? The wind's blowing. Are your sails unfurled to catch that, right? Um, uh, in Pops, we are talking about habits and uh, the habits of the household, specifically how we run our homes uh, in a way that has a pattern. And we, we're talking about this illustration of a vine and a trellis. You all know what a trellis is, right? How the, uh, the vines grow on it. You can plant a grapevine and not have a trellis you're not going to have a good time. It's going to grow gnarled on the ground. More critters are going to get to it. Uh, it's, not, it's not positioned in a way to experience the life coming from the root. You need some structures. You need some things in place. You need some practices. You need to actively give it a way to abide in the life that's coming in. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, and one more illustration just uh, involving marriage. Because uh, I know for me, I think in analogies, and sometimes the right analogy hits you the right way. Um, Anjal and I have been married for 13 and a half years, give or take. Nowhere near as long as some of you, longer than others. Um, and right now, like in the last year or so, I would say we are in a season of just an incredibly sweet time of marriage. And 
like close communion in marriage. We're on the same page. We are, um, we're thinking each other's thoughts ahead of each other. We are anticipating each other's needs. We're serving well. She's better at all of this than I am. Um, our first year of marriage was not like that. We fought a lot our first year of marriage. Some, par- some people have the opposite. Their first year is great, and then they fight later or whatever. But, but our first year of marriage, we weren't any less married than we are now. We're just experiencing the benefits of that marriage and the sweetness of that marriage in a different way because our communion is closer. Does that make sense? Okay, so don't confuse your union with Christ that we talked about last week and that you'll hear me refer to a few times again today with communion with God. Those are different things. Communion, your level of communion with God is going to change as you draw near to him. But your union with Christ is a factual affair. You are united to Christ and you are in him and he is in you. Got it? Sweet. Um, So the Holy Spirit abides on you. And then we get to this really weird verse. And again, you talk about verses that you don't look forward to teaching very much. And this is one of them. Um, You have no need that anyone should teach you. Does anybody read that and think it was weird? Anybody? Anybody at all? You have no need that anyone should teach you. I love this quote from D.A. Carson. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Uh, I love that quote. Uh, I also heard Greg Kokel, an apologist, say, never read a Bible verse. Never read a Bible verse. Because A, the Bible wasn't written in verses. And B, there's stuff that fits around that Bible verse. And if you ignore all that stuff, you get weird things happening sometimes. Um, Lately, there has been a trend in younger believers uh, to get this. And and I think these things are probably cyclical. So if you go back far enough, this probably happened in, in the 50s, I don't know, 60s. This spirituality of like, I don't need the church. I don't need teaching. Sometimes even I don't need the Bible. I just need me and Jesus. I need me and Jesus and I can have church in the woods and I can just sit there and think about him and worship and that's all I need. Um, God can do great things when you're out in the woods. We were out in the woods not too long ago and I really appreciated the beauty of God's creation. But John is not saying here that you never need to be taught. Let's be really clear with that. And how do we know that? Uh, The very first way we know is that John is literally in the middle of teaching them. Okay? He's not like, close this up, you don't need this. He wouldn't have written it. This would have been the last verse, right? He would have been like, you don't need if anybody need to teach you. Bye. Right? Um, again, over and over in the New Testament, Ephesians 4.11, and he gave some of the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers, 1 Corinthians, and God appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Hebrews 5.12, although by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need teachers, okay? You need teachers. God gave us teachers for a reason. Uh, so using that context, the bigger scope of the New Testament, we know that, God, that John is not saying here and that God is not saying through John that you have every bit of information you need and that no one can ever teach you anything. He's not saying they don't need teachers at all but that they don't need teachers to present a new gospel 
or more specifically, a new understanding of Christ's deity and incarnation. Uh, and in fact, that for them to accept teaching, such a teaching could be deadly for them. Uh, do you all understand that distinction? Good. Because here's the deal. We live in a world with no shortage of teaching. Uh, the internet has given us teaching from everywhere. I can dial up whatever pastor's sermon I want and listen. And it, and it was already there. And then COVID dialed it up to 11. And now I can, I can stream anybody's church service practically um, any Sunday morning and get teaching from anybody. And I know if you've heard about these studies where like, if you have like three choices, you end up being happier than if you have like a hundred choices because too much choice overwhelms. Well, in this case, not only is too much choice overwhelming, it can be, uh, again, it can be deadly. You can follow teaching that is in error. Uh, so how, I want to just take a little kind of like a, a sidestep here. And it's because how do we know when I encounter teaching? Because you don't always search it out either. Somebody, maybe you're on, on social media and somebody shares, you know, an idea, a thought, a post, um, a sermon clip, a book, and says, hey, this is awesome. How do I know whether I should accept or reject that teaching? Um, and I've just got some basic guidelines here that I think will be helpful for us as we do that. Um, the first is know the difference between primary and auxiliary matters of faith. So Christ's deity, the fact that Jesus was God, is that a primary or auxiliary matter of faith? That is primary. If Jesus isn't God, the whole thing breaks, okay? Um, Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross for our sins, the fact that he bore our sins on the cross, is that primary auxiliary? Yes. The fact that he was resurrected on the third day, is that primary or auxiliary? Primary. The fact the idea that women shouldn't teach in church, is that primary or auxiliary? That's auxiliary, okay? Um, I got one for you. The fact that we shouldn't baptize infants, is that primary or auxiliary? Would you guys dismiss as a heretic somebody who believed in baptizing infants? Good, because you have to throw away all your Tim Keller books. Okay. All right. Um, I... And we all have, even if it's just through Keith and our other pastors, I've learned a tremendous amount from Tim Keller, even if we disagree on baptism. And I feel silly saying that I disagree with Tim Keller because I feel like that puts me at a serious disadvantage. Um, John Stott and J.I. Packer, lifelong Anglicans who I would disagree with a lot about theologically. They are genuine believers that I will see in heaven, okay? And, I, and they can benefit me. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys know the apologist William Lane Craig, uh, really staunch defender of the faith. He has some weird thoughts on the age of the earth and the nature of creation. He is, he is an Arminian in his soteriology. Um, he is a believer who I can benefit from in teaching. We need to make sure that we aren't elevating secondary matters above primary matters and dismissing anybody that disagrees with anything that we think. Does that make sense? Because here's the deal. If I only ever listen to anybody who only agrees with me on 100% of things, I will literally never learn anything. I need people who think differently and think bigger and approach from different angles than I do. That's really important for you to have. If all you have on your bookshelf is books by one author, uh, you're going to end up 
probably pretty narrow in your thought process on some things. I want you to focus on listening for affirmation versus information versus transformation. Okay? Listening for affirmation, that's a reiteration of our own current ideas and beliefs. It's reading that thing that makes us go, amen, brother, right? That's affirmation. Somebody, uh, is that ever useful? Yeah. Sometimes we just need the truths of the gospel reiterated to us in a way that we know new information comes in, but we're affirmed in what we hear. That's all you ever do. You're going to get a little one-dimensional. Information, new ideas, uh, or deepening or expanding of current ideas and beliefs that you have. Um, Listening for information is good as well. We want to know what's out there. We want to know what people think. We want to know. Um, in fact, like the fact that I know that Tim Keller believes in baptizing infants makes me inclined to hear what he has to say about that from an informative standpoint. He may not change my mind, but uh, this is a great example, especially coming from a city like New Orleans where only people we ever thought did that was Catholics, right? And we thought, that's really, really weird. You don't do that. Um, to hear somebody else's approach who I theologically agree with on 99% of things, to hear, hear his approach to that and his reasoning for that is really interesting to me, right? Because I get to see some information there. Even if it's not going to change my position, I get some information. But the real goal of teaching is transformation. We want to encounter the truths of the gospel presented in a way that transform us further into the image of Christ. That's why we get teaching. That's what the point of this whole thing is, is drawing us more and more into the image of Jesus, more and more into his likeness, more and more into experiencing his goodness and the sweetness of communion with him. That's the goal of teaching. That's where we want to be. That's the sweet spot. Okay, so, so think through all of those layers. And, and even if you're just aware of these three things, you can be thinking, all right, why am I listening to this? Why am I reading this? They're all good things to do sometimes, but if all you ever do is affirmation and you're never getting information and never especially getting transformation, time to broaden and think through some ways that you can, uh, you can get some teaching in some different ways. Any questions about that? I'm willing to open up for a question here. That make it set. Sweet. I didn't have a mic ready for you to pass around, so um, let me get some water. Where do our next effect? Effect number five. So that when he appears, we may have confidence. So what's the first word of that? When he appears. So what does that mean? When. What does he not say? If he appears. <laughs> Again, the little words matter. When he appears means he will appear. So Jesus is coming back. There is a certainty to the return of Christ. We don't know the day, but it is certain in its occurrence. It will happen. Again, I got an magic Greek, here for, Greek word here for you guys. This root word, phanero'o, um, and it describes the revelation of Christ. And John uses this in a variety of places. Uh, in 1 John 1, 2, describing Jesus' first coming, his original incarnation, the life was made manifest. That is that same word as appearing. And we have seen it. When he revealed his glory through his miracles, um, at the wedding at Cana, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and in Galilee and manifested, appeared, his glory. After he's resurrected, at this, Jesus revealed himself again, same word, to the disciples. And then lastly, and here at his return, 
And now little children abide in him so that when he appears. So we know two things about his Christ's return. It will happen. And it's going to happen in the same way it happened the first time, specifically that it's a physical deal. This is a physical return. We, we discussed this a little bit last week. Jesus still has a body. Okay? I heard, a, a, I was listening to a book this week, uh, and the author said, a specific man of a specific height and weight is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that kind of blew my mind. Like, Jesus has a specific height and weight. He is a particular human being. Uh, and where that matters, by the way, is that Jesus didn't put on flesh as this, like, super gross thing that he wore for a little while and then couldn't wait to get it off. Jesus took on flesh forever. Jesus, I mean, I want you to hear everything I mean in this word and hear nothing that I mean with, the, with this word, nothing that I don't mean with this word. Jesus deified humanity. He glorifies the fact that, that there is such a thing as a human body that God created to bear his image, okay? And it bears his image forever, perfectly. That's really cool. I just think that's really cool. Maybe I'm just a nerd, but to me, that's really cool. And it kind of weirds me out a little bit, uh, but I love it. That there's, that there's a physical Jesus. He is sitting down. He's doing things. He's praying. Um, and that physical body is going to return. Don't know what it's going to look like. Uh, we have some Im images in scripture, but that there's going to be a physical return of Christ. And that we can have confidence in that moment. Now, confidence here is a word that, G, that John uses, just like when he talks about eternal life, John uses this idea two different ways. There is a present confidence and there is a future confidence. So I'm going to start with the future confidence because that's what John's talking about here, but I want to reel it back into our present confidence uh, because it's easier to apply what it means to have present confidence than it is to apply what it means to have future confidence because uh, we can't really do anything about the future. Um, but it is important to know that we have future confidence. So John says, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. By the way, these words confidence and not shrink are the same word, just negative. So we can have confidence and we cannot not have confidence. That's, that's the Greek there. Um, later, he says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So the coming... And this day of judgment, that's this moment here. Um, we can't be confident in our own works, though. We can't be confident in our own sinless perfection. We are all sinners. None of us have been perfectly sinless. None of us have been perfectly righteous in our works. So even if you went about your whole life never sinning, which you haven't, which I haven't, I still haven't done all the good I could have done, right? I'm still not perfectly righteous. I still stand short of God's standard. But I can stand in confidence before God in Christ because we abide in him. Picture Russian nesting dolls. We abide in Jesus. And God looks on him for our declaration of righteousness. And that is very good news because if it were on us, 
uh, none of us could stand. None of us could stand before a holy God on our own record. We all know this, guys, but sometimes it's just fun to just dwell on this thought. Like we, we bear God's blessing and his approval only through the person and work of Jesus that we dwell in. And that's good news. And it's good news for the present. Because, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So not only will we be able to stand confidently when he approaches us at his return, we can confidently approach him, which feels even gutsier. Am I right? Because it's one thing to be like, I'm okay if he shows up. I'm okay if the king comes to my village. I don't have to worry about him destroying my house. Uh, It's a different thing to say, I get to go to the palace. I get to go to the throne room and I get to talk to the king. That's a whole different level of confidence and approval. Um, And I like to take some of these verses in, uh, I think I mentioned them in your notes, uh, from Hebrews, because Hebrews approaches this approaching of God from a priestly perspective that I think really serves well here in our abiding in Christ idea. Um, The writer of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And later he says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's the same confidence there, by the blood of Jesus. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Folks, what's our most desperate need? It's grace and mercy. That is what we need more than anything else. If we have the grace and mercy of God, we can, we can stand in anything. And we need those from God and we can draw near and receive them because of Christ's priestly work as our perfect representation for us, for your brother or sister sitting next to you, for your husband or wife, for your kid or grandkid, for the coworker. Christ stands in our place if we abide in him. And we can approach and receive mercy on that on that account, and that account alone. <sighs> Again, that's real good news, guys. This is where abiding in Christ hits, hits the road. It's where I can come to God in prayer. I can approach in prayer knowing that I have a priest who's gone before me and who represents me and who I figuratively and really live in and he in me, and that on the basis of him not only being the, the, the high priest offering the sacrifice, but being the lamb himself sacrificed on my behalf, in that place, I can stand in confidence in him and approach the Holy of Holies like no one before Christ's coming could. That is the, the beauty of the gospel. Because again, If we look at the structure of the Bible, God exists as a perfect trinity. He creates man out of an overflowing out of his love as a part of the universe. That man is built to bear his image, which is a giant thought. That image is built to 
walk side by side in a garden with God. Man sins. The image is marred. The communion is broken. The whole, God's point of creating the universe and having this, this extension of the Trinity, this overflow of the goodness of the Trinity is temporarily broken. God sends his son. He redeems us. And the point is to get, he brings that man, perfect man, back into communion with him. And we get to come as we abide in him. So that, that communion of man and God is, I'm hesitant to say the central theme of scripture. And I think you could probably make a case there's a few central themes of scripture, but it's a really, really big one. How about that? Will y'all let me hedge my bets a little bit with that? It's a really, really big theme in scripture. It's where the priesthood is. Jesus himself is God and man. There's a lot there. The point is, it's a big deal. Anytime you see God and man in close proximity in scripture, pay attention because something important is happening. <sighs> Lastly, you will practice righteousness. Y'all may notice, I love to talk about what the author's not saying. You're just gonna, that's just something I do. Because that's the way my brain works. I think through all the ways this could possibly mis- be misunderstood. And I want to make sure that we don't misunderstand things. So this is not saying that everyone who practices righteousness will be born of him. We are not born of him on account of our works of righteousness. Make sense? It's also not saying that everyone who has been born of him practices righteousness. By the way, the Bible does say that, just not here. All right, we have John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So being born in Jesus, being born again, does result in works. Uh, Ephesians 4, 24. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true, in true righteousness and holiness. So righteousness is an outworking of genuine faith. And if there is no growth in righteousness, it is time to stop and assess, is there genuine faith? That is a legitimate thought process to have. Um, that is not what John is doing here, though. Again, John, and that's, that, by the way, that is, as I said, the, I think the first time I taught, that's why I was always really hesitant to read First uh, John and James sometimes as well, but First John specifically, because it feels like this, like, are you really saved test? Um, and I think only in this last time reading through it and preparing it and really digging in have I understood the, the deeply pastoral nature of John's, um, of John's letter. He is not sifting here. He's not trying to sort out, sort out sheep from goats because the goats have already left in this book. The goats are gone. They're trying to draw sheep. John is speaking specifically to the sheep who have not abandoned and who is giving them hope and confidence and assurance of their genuine faith. John's readers, he's assuming, by the way he says that, by the way this verse works, he's assuming that they can see righteousness present in their lives. And he knows that it's evidence of the miraculous work of regeneration and of their union with the perfectly righteous Christ. We we have believers here who are doubting things because these these folks leaving their church and drawing them with false gospels and they are trying to figure out am i am i even really 
Like, what is this? What is faith? Am I real? Is this, is this genuine? And John is saying, you can tell it's genuine because you who were dead in your sins are alive with Christ. And you can see it because of the righteousness in your works that wasn't there beforehand. There's an assurance. He's pointing them to the good works in others' lives. Uh, brief application point here. Be like that. Be like that to your brothers and your sisters and your spouses and your kids and your kids and your grandkids and your coworkers and your just other believers in the church. When you see evidence of grace in someone's life, point it out to them. Point out how God is doing good things in them, especially when they're having a hard time. When you see somebody who's down, when you have someone who you know tends to heap guilt on themselves, they don't need help with that. Help them see the good things that God's doing in their life. Okay? Um, At the same time, John is talking about doing good works. And I think we have to talk about that a little bit. Um, So we come from a Reformed theological position. Uh, You can call it Calvinism. You can call it uh, Reformed theology. Uh, We, so what's really black and white in Reformed theology is what we call the soteriology, the when you are saved. It's very clear. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room. There's not a lot of gray there. It's very much you're unsaved. Uh, Jesus, uh, Christ uh, revives you from your death and saves you into life with him. And then you are, then so black and white, right? Then you are saved. Um, and works are pulled out of that, that equation entirely. And it makes it really straightforward and simple. You're not confused about how that happens or when that happens. But it means that we get nervous when we try to bring those works back into the conversation because we feel so certain about this element of how we're saved that we're worried that anything is going to mess with it. It's this nice little closed system, this closed uh, chemical reaction, if you will. And once we start bringing stuff in, it's going to, oh, well, how does that affect this? And then and anytime somebody starts talking about doing good works, we get real nervous. Like, but, 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 but. okay. Um, we need to not let our confidence in how God save us, saves us result in a hesitance to talk about the works that he equips us to do and requires of us after we are saved. Does that make sense? Let's not be afraid to talk about good works. When did God give the law to the Israelites? Was it before or was it after he redeemed them from Egypt? After. He didn't say, if you do all these things, I'll let you out of Egypt, did he? He saved them. And then he asked a lot of really specific things of them. Um, There's a whole world of theology and people have written giant books about what that means and how Paul assesses it and all that stuff. But here's the point. Don't be afraid to talk about good works and don't be afraid to do good works and don't be afraid to require good works of yourself, okay? Uh, Your salvation is not on the line, but God's glory is made greater when you do them, okay? Um, This was probably the biggest takeaway thought I had. I I listened to, like I said, a book. I don't have a lot of time for reading. I'm in the car a lot and dadding and whatnot. I listen to a lot of books. Uh, you can jot down this book, by the way. It's a book called, it's about the, the doctrine of union with Christ. It is called Union with Christ. Um, it's by an author named Rankin Wilborn. It was written a few years ago. Um, 
I'm not going to tell you you're going to listen to or read this book and be like, oh, now I understand it all. I don't think that this is theology that you ever really understand is kind of what I'm at right now. I'll get back to you in a few years. I don't think you ever just completely grasp it. I think it, it's such a bigger than us idea that all we can really do is meditate on it a lot and really let it dwell in us as a thought and just process life through it without really being able to explain it in a simple, straightforward line. Because it's, like I said, it's just a giant concept and it's it's very nebulous feeling. It's very, um, I was talking to Steve about this last week. It's very imagination heavy. heavy. And what I mean by imagination is not that we imagine it because it's not true, but we imagine it because it's conceptual ideas that we have to make into images in our head. I mean, that kind of imagination, okay? Um, but anyway, this was an idea that Rankin Wilborn in this book talks about. And for me, it was probably the biggest takeaway I've had from this book. We abide in Christ, right? Christ abides in us. So there's another nesting doll inside that nesting doll, if that makes sense. Our abiding in Christ assures us. Write this down, by the way, because I didn't think to write this in your notes, okay? Our abiding in Christ assures us. Christ abiding in us empowers us. Let's say it again. Our abiding in Christ assures us. Christ abiding in us empowers us. There's a reason why God states it both ways. And I think the function of both is different in terms of how we perceive it. And so I guess what I ask as our takeaway for this week is how, how can we like I said, what would our lives look like if we knew that we can obey out of a knowledge that we're already safely hidden in Christ? That my salvation is not dependent on whether I screw this thing up or not. That God's love for me is not dependent on how many good things or bad things I do. Um, but that my proclamation of his glory uh, can be magnified by how I walk in good deeds towards my brothers and sisters. And I think in some ways that helps me because we can tend to think of righteousness and obedience in a negative fashion. I have this list of things I'm not called to do. I'm called not to be lazy. I'm called not to be prideful. I'm, not, I'm called not to be lustful. I'm called not to gossip or to steal. Um, But what if we think about righteousness in how we can proclaim God's glory in positive ways? How can I sacrifice for my brother or sister? How can I display peace and gentleness? How can I, um, how can I be encouraging? How can I lay down my life for my husband or wife? I think as we start to see obedience and righteousness in those ways, for me, that be, I don't know about you guys, for me, that becomes a more uh, attractive, a more beautiful way of approaching the, the, the idea. Um, God is glorified when I use self-control and I don't gratify the desires of my flesh. Um, and God is also gratif- uh, glorified when I love my neighbor. So I'd say let's go forth this week. We're going to apply this by loving your neighbor. Can we do that this week? Just love our neighbors in sacrificial ways. We can walk in assurance 
and in righteousness, knowing that our assurance is not dependent on our righteousness. Got it? Cool. I would love to tell you guys what I'm going to talk about next week. I don't have any idea. I got to talk to Peter and see what we're talking about. Um, So we're either going to move forward and talk about being children of God, which is a really cool concept, um, or we are going to go back and talk about not loving the world. So I'm going to talk to Peter, and I'll see you guys next week. Thank you all for coming.